Thank you for listening to Psyche Design. I'm super excited to share with you this interview with type expert, Linda Behrens, where we talk about the ethics of personality type instruments, the self-discovery process, and how to best use this very powerful tool for understanding in a way that doesn't cause harm. Linda Behrens, founder of InterStrength, has been working with the theory of personality types since 1975 and was even mentored by David Kiersey, founder of the Kiersey Temperament Theory and author of Please Understand Me. Behrens has integrated Kiersey's temperaments with the works of Carl Jung in MBTI and looks at the 16 holistic patterns of type through multiple lenses to help people find their best fit type. Now she offers a full curriculum for personality type practitioners and has written several books about typology. For information about her certification programs and books, check out the links in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello there. Um, today I'm here with uh, typology expert um, Linda Behrens. Uh, thank you for joining me today. We're going to be talking a lot about the ethics of personality type instruments and the self-discovery process and, you know, a little bit about your background too, Linda. Um, so I guess to just start off, do you want to introduce yourself for people who maybe aren't familiar with your work? Sure, thank you. I'll try not to take the whole hour. Uh, so so uh, my work with type started when I was in a master's degree program in counseling, and it was uh, chaired by Marilyn Bates and architected by David Kersey. And during that time, I had to take a psychopathology class. And in there, there were four three-hour lectures. You know, they were night courses. And uh, we t- learned four different ways people go crazy meaning four different ways that people become dysfunctional. And the last way, the last 20 minutes of that lecture was, and here's what's looking, what they look like when they're functional. Mm. And then, so there, were, there was one for each of the four temperament patterns David Kersey had, had been researching on, and he had read all the literature about personality differences throughout the ages. And he... Um, he said, and, and you know, we, were, we were allowed to take the Myers-Briggs to help us figure out what, what fit us at that point. And uh, I can't even remember. I know it was a mimeographed form M, which of course broke copyright law, talk about ethical issues. Um, but, but I took it and I, I reported as INTP and I went to talk to David Kersey and he's I was really devastated because I thought I can't be a good counselor. I can't be a good, you know, I wasn't, I was aiming to be a school counselor at the time. And, um, and then he, you know, disabused me of that issue. And then it was, that was the late seventies, 75, something like that. And then I went on and became a school psychologist and I was using type in with the teachers and using, using the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And, and talking about type, but mostly talking about temperament, the four patterns that he had discovered. And when I did my doctoral work in psychology, I, I read all these books from the 1920s and, that David Kersey asked me to read because he was on my committee. And uh, it turns out in the 1920s, typology was hot. It was a hot topic in Europe. In the US, it was behaviorism. So mm-hmm. if there's a resistance to typology, it may go back to 
that those roots in terms of the whole foundation of um, you know I want to say go west young man but you know the, the the founding of this country where there's a lot of independence in that founding and in, in, yeah. in the in the in the culture really so um, anyway so I was just delighted and I later also found out in the 1920s what was also a hot topic was systems theory mm-hmm. and so my whole training and background with David Kersey was family systems theory, larger systems, and how individual dysfunction is a, is a function of the system, not just of the individual. So, so you know, strong belief that people aren't crazy, that mm. there's something, something else going on, and you have to look at the whole system. So could, question really quick, can you explain a little bit uh, for people who may not know I guess David Kiersey, was his type system related at all to MBTI or what was the dynamic there? Like how different was that? Yeah, so what David had identified were four temperaments, four Mm -hmm. patterns he called temperaments. And and I don't remember what names he had called them at the time, but um, he was encountered the early Myers-Briggs, early version of the Myers-Briggs, and he took it and he read Isabel Meyer's description of INTP, Mm. and he was just like astounded. It was as if she had been following him around. Mm. And so then he got into looking at the Myers-Briggs and the way it was constructed and said that if you, if you grouped people differently than by what's called function pairs in the Myers-Briggs language these days, the two middle letters, um, you would see that the, the temperament patterns were related to those types so that you had NF and NT and SJ and SP. And so then you had those, the four types that have those letters in their type code uh, would have in common the same temperament. Now, temperament involves your needs, your core values, and your, your uh, talents, and it's a pattern of behavior. So the thing I got from Kersey was the primacy of pattern over parts. So pattern rules, you know, we're not just a head and feet. <laughs> yeah, know, we have a pattern to our behavior, and the pattern stays the same over time. So it seems very Kersey different from the behavioral sort of yeah, stuff. Right. So there are behaviors. I'm sorry, there, but oh, there are behaviors ahead. that go with that. Mm-hmm. But there is some driver, some driving force. And that's my interpretation of Kersey's work. More, more that there are core psychological needs, which I actually got in that pathology class. It's when your core needs aren't getting met, then you become dysfunctional in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, that dysfunction is an attempt to restore the integrity of the whole. Mm-hmm. To, get, okay. to get your yeah. needs met. Yeah. So, you know, it relates to stress and all of that. And he wrote a book called Please Understand Me with Marilyn Bates, who was the chair of the department at the mm-hmm. time. That was actually the first type book that I read where whenever I read the ENFJ description, I had that same feeling of like, whoa, right. this, he really does understand me, like the title says. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I gave it to my husband and he did too. And, um, and then... Uh, you know, I, I sometimes thought, no, my preferences are INFP, but then people say, mm-hmm. in your wildest dreams, Linda. So, <laughs> so um, question, 
Uh, I want to ask you what you do now, but since you're telling me such good background, I also just, I'm curious, like that feeling that where you were devastated, like I can't be a counselor because I'm an INTP. I think that Mm -hmm. that resonates with maybe a lot of people or maybe the fears that people have about type where they don't Mm -hmm. want to feel that way. So I guess what I want to know is, did you have that feeling at first of like, oh my gosh, this understands me? Or did you feel at all misunderstood or limited or, and how did you work through that? Well, I, I felt, I felt understood if that, but, and then it Mm. just made me question my career choice, Mm. you know, school counselor and then later school psychologist. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't last in that job. So, you know, I got budgeted out when the budget went and five years and that was enough because I didn't want to do testing and determine some child's life based on the intersection Mm. between an achievement test and a and a psychological you know an IQ test and that's how it was when I got budgeted out so I I left that field and went into consulting and tried to take the world you know create the world where people understood type and and maybe themselves maybe kind of even a good segue to what you do now is that it seems like you found the way to use INTP strengths to be like a type researcher and to improve the systems of type and how we think about type. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I entered, uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was a licensed therapist and I, I figured five clients a week was too much. And then my passion really was understanding individual differences and helping people uh, find themselves. Because a lot of times we grow up in an environment where, where we're not allowed to be who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not appreciated. And, um, and, and so that was part of it. And part of it was, I, and I joined up with the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator fans mm-hmm. uh, in the Association for Psychological Type that was founded to help people understand that. And I met resistance and David Kersey had met resistance. So um, <clears throat> I set about to learn the Jungian model, which was behind the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. better than most of the people knew it. And I found that very useful. And I, I could explain that model as well as the four temperament patterns. And um, <clears throat> after doing um, MBTI qualifying programs starting in 1999, I think, mm-hmm. with another company called Type Resources. And I, I did those for three years with them. And then I did some more on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did those until 2000, the end of 2007. And so um, soon we found we couldn't use the Myers-Briggs results as an indicator of what the temperament was because of measurement error in an assessment. Yes. So, so. so that, that sort of, you know, it sort of, it was my education background coming into play because it was about how do you teach people and how do we do a self-discovery process that works when an instrument itself isn't going to give you the right answer. So we, we started using temp- the names of the temperaments. <clears throat> and then we came up with our own names for each yeah. of the patterns. And 
yeah. And then if just a, a little bit about what I do now is yeah. I teach people to do those things. So I, I certify yes. people in using three different lenses. And now we're working on a fourth where they all intersect at that level of the 16 types. So that's the researcher part. Yeah. But the other part is the teaching part and the helping people discover their best fit. So how would you respond to this? Because I guess my understanding of, of it is it's everybody can do everything, right? So it's like, just because you're an INTP doesn't mean that you can't, you know, go into that field. But to what extent, it, it, like, to what extent can, is that, can you use the information to make better choices? Sorry. Um, you mean like a career choice? Yeah, because in my understanding, it seems like every industry or field or whatever you go into, it still values all of the 16 type skills and all of the eight mm -hmm. functions. There still like can be a place for you no matter where you go, right? Mm -hmm. Or what's the correct way, I guess, to think about your type and career and career placement? Oh boy. <laughs> um, well, first of all, don't use an instrument because instruments have measurement error. All of them do. And in the, the you know, the Myers-Briggs type indicator manual, it's anywhere from, I don't know, one tables, 40% agreement with best fit type, the highest in that particular table with, you know, a lot of, lot of people was 85%. That's actually quite good because by chance, it's 6%. Oh, so it's a good it's a good thing, but it's still enough of a measurement error. Uh, There's so many things that cause that measurement error, and I've forgotten your question, but I'll finish this thought because it's relevant. It's okay. mm -hmm. You know, it's if you take the the an instrument of any kind like that, whether it's the Big Five or whatever, you you and you take it at work, you may reply in your work context, and you may not be yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm more myself in my work context than I am at home. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you say, think about yourself across all kinds of contexts, you get a better result, but that often doesn't happen. So all the framing and the setup, and then we develop, we develop skills, which gets, I think, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. can develop, you can access in the Jungian model, all eight of the cognitive processes. They're all there. You can access them. Some will take more energy. Some of them you may be naturally better at because that's what's innate and you've been drawn to do it. And you would have engaged it and, you know, it's sort of like, a, oh, this is a strange analogy, but I, mm -hmm. I you know, take a shower and I dry off and the towel gets wet. You know, and I get to another part of my body and I turn, turn the towel over, but my hand is feeling the wet side. So my hand is the information that tells me that it's still wet when it, it's actually dry. Mm. So when you use an aspect of your brain, for example, mm. or your being wherever that's located over and over again, um, and, and some of them are designs, our, our hands are designed to be ultrasensory more so than our backs mm. in terms of skin, the nerves. So, you know, it's some practice in some of the way that's innate. Mm -hmm. And now I really have forgotten the question. <laughs> it's okay. I realize that I can, uh, it's, I'll get back. I'll get back to that question because it's relevant okay. later. But since oh, we're talking career about choice. <laughs> yes, career choice. But before about, mm -hmm. we talk about that measurement error, I, oh, okay. I was going to 
I was going to start off just by asking, what would you say are the biggest kind of ethical puzzles when it comes to using type? Um, what even is type? The ethical dilemma of it. And I think measurement error is a big thing. And it seems like a lot of the criticism that type theory gets is because it's not, it's considered not scientifically valid. And mm -hmm. then people throw the baby out with the bathwater and all of the theory mm -hmm. uh, behind right. it. So what, what is your take on that? And I know you have a whole spiel about it. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, in the day when I was teaching the MBTI qualifying program, we, we taught a whole lot of ethical practices. Yeah, um, but but uh, the main thing is that um, you, need to, you need to study an instrument if you're going to use an instrument. Mm. And so you need to understand the research on its reliability and its validity. And reliability has to do with internal consistency as well as uh, consistency over time. So sometimes people say, oh, it's not, it's not a good instrument because I tested this way this time and the next time I took it, I tested mm -hmm. another way. Well, that's a problem of, of administration. That's, that's an ethics issue. So you have to present it in a way as a practitioner to, so that people know that it may be a picture of a slice in time and that the practitioner can help somebody tease out why it changed over time. Mm. But the reliability over time has been you know, good enough in terms mm. of statistical data for the Myers-Briggs. I suppose there are other instruments. There are a lot of them online. I haven't seen published data on those. Mm -hmm. you know, so, And one of the challenges is that you have you've given, say, the instrument to 2,000 people, and you've done it by random digit, digit dialing. You'll call people up. Somebody says, will you do this? Um, or they send me it, and they, and they include a dollar in it. And I keep the dollar. You know, I, but I open the envelope, and the dollar's still in there. Well, I don't want to throw it away, but it's too late to have participated in the study. Other people who are very conscientious and time you know, commitment, if they say make that commitment, they go do that. I have good intentions, but I don't organize my environment enough. So what you don't know with those kinds of studies in terms of identifying certain things is how, what other factors interfered. Mm -hmm. So the practitioner has to recognize that the, that the instrument is one data point. It's a data point in time it may or may not be accurate. And one of the best forms of accuracy or to study it is called best fit type studies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those, I re, you know, Myers-Briggs had reported on them, but that still with that, there was no consistency of the process. So you had a whole bunch of practitioners all over the United States doing those. And so you don't know if they were using the same process. And what I found is that then, then if you give them an instrument like the Myers-Briggs um, a lot of times and, and you then put people into groups by the way they report on the instrument. Then if they were in error, they get wedded to the group. So then they, they take that on as their personality. And there have been 
there's been a lot of misunderstanding in the type literature about what the sensing process is like because most of the people writing about it had an intuitive preference. So extroverted sensing is really fairly misunderstood and introverted sensing is also misunderstood. And the more you say about sensing, the more, the more much of the type literature is talking about what's called introverted sensing. So um, there are so many variables with the instrument that you need to have, in my view, some other means using validated descriptions, for example, narrative descriptions, not just two or three bullet points that, that somebody can read and then that they are in, they've been instructed in some way to, to select two or three and which one fits you the best. And they try it on and they walk around in it for a while and then they may come back. I've had people in my certification programs try on about every type, almost every type pattern. And at the end of the three, three nine week courses still have not figured out their best fit type. And partly because they're trying to use just the processes rather than a cross section. Like one of the things to help is to look at temperament, which we now call essential motivators, separate from type code stuff and interaction styles. And then how do these three lenses give you information? So I guess just to point out really quick, it's important to mention too, for people listening that the MBTI that you may have heard of, it, it's just one instrument. And also there's a separation between, I guess, MBTI, the organization versus MBTI, the instrument. So can you kind of talk a little bit, I guess, about separating what people might think of as personality type, it's kind of separating the whole theory behind it um, versus just like the test itself? Yeah, so the, the instrument is an instrument. You know, if you have a fever and you, you um, put, put it under your, the thermometer under your tongue as they did in my day, and you've just had something cold to drink, you know, you won't get a reliable mm. result. It's a perfect right. metaphor. <laughs> if, if, you, if you use a thermometer, you know, jokingly, my husband got me one of those, the ones that you click, and, mm. you, you know, t a temperature on the thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm still using the one in the ear because I trust the one in the ear, but I still don't know if I know how to work this one. Um, and, and there are other things that affect, you know, temperature. I took my temp, after my second COVID shot, I got, I, I took a nap because I was really tired and I was really warm. And I, but I had been with my bathrobe on, heavy robe, yeah. under the covers. I don't know, did that make my body hotter or would I really have a fever? Well, I did have a fever, but not much. And it, so you don't know all of the variables with personality. And it's, you know, for many people, they haven't been allowed to be themselves because, it, you know, boys shouldn't be like that. Girls shouldn't be like that. Um, you know, in a family, my daughter grew up in a family of three people with INTP preferences and her preferences are ENFJ. So, you know, a lot of subtle messages that I'd really like to take back. So there are all these different variables that impact that. And so um, and it feels, it looks like a test. It feels like a test. You take a test, you have a right answer. Mm. And that's what it feels like when people go online and they take those things. And then they say, you're this. And then they go around and they try those on for a while. 
and then maybe they come back and, and, and they say, well, no, that really wasn't me. Or they try it on, they make career choices that absolutely don't meet any of their needs. Or they try to use it for marriage choices, you know, mm-hmm. couples, or they just wind up feeling like there's something wrong or they say, oh, that's a piece of stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's not accurate. Yeah. So, so, so I don't know if I answered your question. Oh, you did. I just had a, another question too is um, why in your opinion is this, I guess, theory still worth studying even though it's so difficult to measure because I guess what I'm realizing is that it seems like a lot of people in culture there's like this assumption that because it's difficult to measure because there's not a clear answer that it's either not worth studying or you know it seems like there's a value judgment there against it when the real value comes from detaching from the test in my in my opinion well, we have in Western culture a value on measurement mm. in the United States, especially. Yep. So that, that's one thing. So if you're trying to do measurement with a living system, it's pretty hard, especially a highly complex living system like human beings. Mm-hmm. And so with all those other, other variables. And now what was your question? Why is it worth studying? I guess why to is you. it worth studying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and this is my own experience with all the courses. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're doing certification courses, but we wind up with maybe a third of the people in there just for self discovery. Mm. And it helps people explain things about themselves where they felt misunderstood, helps them re own their own, you know, their own nature. It helps them understand their relationships. And one story that's so powerful to me is um, one person with ESFP preferences. He had reported ENFP on the Myers-Briggs, but uh, took my training and, you know, got that straightened out. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was a self-discovery process and he tried it on and it fit. So ESFP fit him best. And his parents had preferences for NFP both Mm. of them and they really just did not understand him and he didn't understand them and he felt defective for a really long time Mm. and there's even more to that story but I can't reveal the details because the details would give away too much information I think that's a very common story that a lot of people that either maybe watch my channel or that are enthusiasts online they I think people really attach to this idea because it can explain this feeling of I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. There's something wrong with me that a lot of people feel, which kind of leads me to, which I want you to respond what you're going to say, but the whole be like me thing that you talk about, I think is a really Uh great model. If if you want to explain, I guess that. Well, that, that actually is what one of my earliest business partners coined this phrase, be like BLM, can't, you know, it has multiple meanings now, but be like me. And then I added to it, be BLT, be like them. Because there are two kinds of things that happen. We wind up feeling like everybody needs to be like us. And of course, you know what's wrong with them. They're lazy, they're crazy, they're bad, they're mad, all kinds of negative things if they're not like me. And that's a natural thing. We expect people to be like ourselves. 
and then be like them, that's not a good place to be either because then you try to, to live outside what you're intended to live. So it depends, you know, I'm not a pure scientific INTP. So for me, there's, we, we have a purpose and that purpose on the planet is what makes my job fit work for me just as much as my type preferences. And so um, it, you know, help accepting that and owning that and understanding that as long as it's not limiting, mm -hmm. you know? So there's no, it, the hardest part is for me to say, oh, well, I made that mistake and I do this all the time. <laughs> I made that mistake because, you know, I'm tired and introverted sensing wasn't working for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in my community, we can laugh about that because it would be like, predictably a less developed function and I inflate it by its position in a pattern. And I tend to think I can just do everything with it. And then I'll forget steps. And then people will send me an email. You posted a recording and it isn't ready yet. You know, it says it's not, it's not ready. I forgot to change the drip schedule, you know, the release oh. schedule. So, uh, um, but, uh, you know, but I know that if I put my hands to it, you know, I head to it, I, I can yeah. do things. As an elementary school teacher in training, I had to take art classes. I was not an artist. So I took Art 101, and they taught us to draw by not looking at the paper. Mm. Then in Art, I don't know what it was, 301 for elementary school teachers, I had to do a line drawing, and I did a beautiful line drawing of a hibiscus flower. It was absolutely gorgeous. When the assignment had me put glue on it and paint on it and then put crayon on it because it was for elementary school and do a wreath. I have a picture on the wall, but if I showed you that, you'd have to see my messy desk. So I keep that to remind me that, and that, I, it, is, that it isn't that I can't, it's that it doesn't come easily or it doesn't come naturally or because I don't want to. And so there are yeah. skills that can be learned. You can get good at it. It may not be your talent. And so helping how, people discover both those sides is helpful. How do we allow our type preferences or the information of the system and the theory um, to allow us to be more responsible in our lives rather than, I guess, making excuses or limiting ourselves? Well, there's something called maturity. <laughs> um, um, I will swear to you, my grand, grandchildren are, many of them, well, I'd say almost all of them, are mature beyond their age for when I grew up. So life experiences make a difference. Um, I think uh, part of what we're teaching in, in our courses is, is mindfulness, becoming aware, mm -hmm. and then, mm -hmm. you know, become having a language to talk about our differences and become aware of where that's coming from. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes uh, my daughter and I, she's in the business as well. So playfully, you know, she'll say, are you using this to manipulate me or whatever? But we know that we're joking. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, you know, the, the whole goal here is to, of all of this is increasing self-awareness. It's, it may or may not be useful in a job search. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cause it seems like, so um, the origins of the MBTI, whenever it was created, uh, was somewhat related to the job search, right? Um, or how, how, how do you see that, I guess, being well, important now? What I, yeah, what I remember about learning <laughs> yeah. about it, because I've been around a long time, um, was that what Isabel Myers wanted to do, the idea of self-report wasn't, was very rare. Psychologists always did assessments. And when they, she and her mother, her mother had her own theory and then when they came across Jung's work, they adapted it to Jung's work and, they, and she wanted to create uh, a way now that self-report was becoming more popular. She wanted to create a way for people to find their fit among those, the Jungian functions and which one was the, the best fit. And so what she mm -hmm. did was she developed these items which created four dichotomies which created then the type code. Um, and at the time it had a lot to do with the war effort in World War II to try to find people, help, help people find a better fit with work. I don't know that that was ever researched. I don't even know where, what my information source is about mm. that. Yeah, I, I read the book, Catherine and Isabel. It's a, mm. a, a story about them and a, a biography. Mm. And I think there was something about that, but uh, it's always a choice. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it is illegal, not, mm -hmm. only, not only unethical, but illegal to use a, a, an instrument score for hiring and firing mm -hmm. and the statistician on my dissertation had a job with the bank you know, a, a, a gig as a grad mm -hmm. student um, with statistics to help them do a study and you know find out which types made better tellers for example Mm. And I was like, oh, you can't do that. And, and actually, if you have the, the criteria for a job and it's looked at in type terms, for example, what they found was you have to have somebody who's good with numbers and money. And so if you can show a correlation between that and the sensing preference or you, you know, being... Uh, gracious with people like the teller would somebody comes to the window um, being good with people and you can show a link between that competency mm -hmm. and the, the instrument results then it's legal to factor that in my view is that you put it in the job description what you're looking for and you craft the job description to appeal to what you want to get David Kersey talked about the four skill sets that go with each of the four temperaments. Mm -hmm. And he said, you could have, you could have people who had, let's, let's call it high quality brain cells, you know, babies who were exposed to lead, you know, chewed the lead off their crib mm -hmm. might have a reason to have a, a reduced quality to their brain cells. This is his example, you know, so what you're looking for is the skill of mm -hmm. logistics, for example. And you mm -hmm. operating a moving company, you need somebody who's good at logistics. So when you're hiring, you can hire for the skill. 
-hmm. But if you have somebody like me who might have the skill, but not the predisposition, and I had a higher score yes. on that, that dimension, and you had two candidates, you should hire me, even though I might hate yes. the work. Yes. And so. that's where I think you've described this as, as well as that you might have a talent or a drive towards certain tasks, but it's your choice if you want to develop a skill just because it's your dominant uh, function or I, uh, whatever you want to call it. There's so many different mm -hmm. terms for it. Um, how, how would you, I guess, word that as far as like, it's your choice to develop the skill? Or well, sometimes just... it's not really a choice because you need to earn a living. So you get good at it. Yeah. What, what um, a typology can do or an aptitude test either way depends on how, how mm -hmm. well they're done. It can predict how much energy it's going to take. Mm. So See, you, you, yeah, you, 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 no, you say, I want to be, I want to be this. So I'm going to learn to do that. And if I know it's going to take energy, then it's not as stressful. Mm. That's interesting. And I've, I've just noticed, like I work in marketing and I feel like there's sort of a natural like FE sort of like I'm drawn toward, oh, I, I, I know what people want and need, but the culture, at least in my experience is very much data is everything. You have to prove everything that you're doing. You have to use Google analytics and pull all these reports. You can't just say, oh, I feel like people would like this. You have to prove it. And that is very draining for me. I've had to do it. <laughs> like I, there's no choice. If I, if I want to be good at what I'm actually good at or ever live to see the day where my jobs take less energy for me, I literally have to do things that I don't want to do. Um, and so, yeah, um, that's just, I guess, an observation there. But um, I, I had another a question for you, kind of a broad one, but um, in an ideal world, what would we be using type for? Like, what, what is it for then? Because we've talked kind of a bit about, you know, hiring and like just trusting the test, but like, what, what is it for? <laughs> um, I believe its main purpose is to increase consciousness, to increase awareness. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other purpose, another piece of that would be to um, increase interpersonal understanding hmm. and then to develop skills against getting out of polarization. So if we take the extreme polarization we have going on, I have a feeling that the same skills we would use in a relationship where people are fighting could be used to understand what people are seeing. Now, type will not explain everything. So one of our students has recently looked at something called think conceptual metaphor and I don't know enough about about it to talk about it much mm -hmm. other than um, when something gets embedded in your brain in a certain way then it doesn't take much to trigger that whole response to a situation so information isn't always going to help people and understanding mm -hmm. individual difference isn't always going to help people um, see the other side hmm so, you know, it's not just type, but, but it, I think understanding your own 
inclinations and then you know being patient with the other person helping you know recognizing that they're not out to get you or that yeah. you know they don't they aren't you know i tell my students i often when i'm on zoom and when i'm listening when i'm listening i look like i'm frowning <laughs> and otherwise we take my picture off because i don't like to see my picture but i have to keep that picture up there so that i can tell if i'm frowning and my daughter who's in the background may send me a chat mom stop frowning but i'm not, not frowning i'm concentrating and i'm listening and that's the wrong expression for deep listening but that's kind of what happens and so mm. that that happens if you make assumptions about what people are are doing that's an you interesting know. example of i guess you trying to adapt to cultural norms or what people might expect rather mm. than just being like no this is my listening face i'm going to do what i want whereas i feel like i've had to learn that just because um, other people might not be as inclined to make the first move of wanting to ask me how I'm doing or any of that, or like smile or ask me about me. It doesn't mean that they don't care about me. It doesn't mean that because I, I could tell myself like, oh, I'm the only one that puts in energy in social groups and other people don't care about me because they're frowning, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I feel like whenever I now, like if I know that someone is introverted or maybe has INTP preferences, I, I feel like I even tell myself now, like that's concentrating, <laughs> like that's a concentrating face. <laughs> don't make an assumption. Yeah. yeah. What they say about assumptions, right? Yeah. I guess like I say that as an example, but I don't want to assume what the frowning means, but just sort of right. being aware, you know? Right. Right. And that, you know, it's something to check out. <laughs> yeah. If it continues, right. Yeah. And so, um, what was I? So, okay, that kind of leads into the, the self-discovery process. You, you, oh. wh why do you use the self-discovery process rather than instruments? Well, it, it happened. <laughs> so back in the day when I was doing uh, early on, the MBTI qualifying programs, which really, like I said, are really, the exams in there were more pretty darn rigorous um, mm -hmm. around ethics and, and even statistics. Um, I joined forces with somebody who was using the, the eight function model, not just the type code. So, but we, you know, we were doing Myers-Briggs, so we had to talk about the, the dichotomies. And she wanted to branch out and use temperament mm. or essential motivators as we call it. And I, I got permission to have my own program and I would have had to develop the whole stats module. <laughs> so Margaret Hartzler and I joined forces and for three years I, I did that program. So it started out, we, were, we would do um, the dichotomies in the morning and the, the four temperaments in the afternoon. And one of the early programs, a woman came in and the way we would do that, it'd say, well, if there's an S and a J in your code, it's this one. If it's an N and T in your code, it's this one. And then people say, well, why is it not the same letters? Well, it's just the way the patterns match. Yeah. But what happened was a woman came in and she said, I'm going to sit up front because I get in trouble. And I says, oh, you know, that's fine. Stand up to whatever you need. No, no, I'm going to sit up front. So, okay. And so I observed her behavior and it looked to me kind of looked to me like improviser or the mm. SP pattern. 
And she reported ESTJ as what she thought mm. her type was. And I said, have you ever looked at it? I didn't say directly, would you look at it? I said, have you ever mm -hmm. looked at it? So when we did the breakout groups in the afternoon with by temperament, by putting people in where their type code sent them, she went to the SJ group. And there, there were, at this time, unusually a lot of people with SP preferences in there because it was the way the Deming movement where every, you know, teamwork, they were getting sent to the program. And so she did, she did the report out on this SJ group. I can't remember what the assignment was. And the people with the SP preferences said, I have a question. You know, Andrea, was that, you know, to ask the group, was this mostly Andrea's thing? Did you guys, like, yeah, we were being nice, <laughs> they said. Oh my God. So I talked to her and she went on her lunch break and read, the, read about ESTP mm -hmm. and decided that indeed fit her. And the interesting thing was in the afternoon, ESTP had to present their type to the group. Mm. So she came in and told a story, which verified the whole thing. Yeah. So you know, we figured, let's stop using the letters. Don't put people in groups by their letters. Let's, let's do a self-discovery process. So we explained the four temperaments and uh, by using the names that David Kersey had given them, artisan, guardian. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember uh, idealists and oh, yeah. rationals. You know? yes. and so the, there were problems with those names, but that aside. And so we had uh, some, we would create some graphics and tell some stories and we used animal metaphors so people could get a, you know, at the sense of them, the fox, the beaver, the dolphin, mm. and the owl. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, and, and then we would say, try these on. And then we would put them into groups and have them, you know, go to go to the group to talk about, um, I know something like um, we called it Person of the Year Award. That one didn't work too well for a long mm -hmm. time. Um, we we had another topic that would work where, where values, the values would be different. The temperament values would show up, and so we we had them verify that, and then try that on, and then match it to the type code to see if it matched. Yeah. It just occurred to me too that since the type instrument is self-report, that self-discovery really mm -hmm. is not that far off from self-report. It's just giving you more to react to rather than right. taking a test where you don't really understand if it's like, wh what are you like in this situation? You might be thinking, well, this context or this context, it seems like the self-discovery process kind of widens that, makes it easier to yeah. reflect rather than am I this or this? Yeah, and then eventually we got some first person descriptions mm -hmm. based on interviews with people. And, um, and we, create, we got some little themes, little snapshot themes that we have tried pe people try on mm -hmm. and some third person descriptions. So we got booklets, workbooks that supported that self-discovery process. And one of the ethical principles that is rarely used. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I've been talking mm -hmm. for a long time. <clears throat> um, rarely referenced is that you really should provide access to all 16 patterns, mm -hmm. pattern descriptions, 
for people to try on. And so the whole idea of test somebody, tell them what their type is, and leave it at that is an unethical, that's unethical. Because it's like going to the doctor and having the doctor say, well, I, I think you have appendicitis. And really what you have is ga a gas bubble. You know, and then they yeah. take out your appendix. Not That's checking. A bad example. But, yeah. <laughs> but not checking. And yeah. so I've had people spend five days in the workshops with me and have them leave and come back and say, you know, I, I really decided this other one. So it's a journey that we can start mm -hmm. people on that then increases their self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people would ask uh, on the breaks or over the evening, they would call their parents or their siblings or their friends or spouses. Mm -hmm. And let, let me read this description to you. Mm. And ultimately, um, well, ultimately, we we would we would get to sixty types and have them read self portraits that we got from interviews. Mm -hmm. So there was a you know a sort of a validated process. Um, we were doing first we were doing temperament and then we would do David Kersey added something called directing and informing communications. And then later he added initiating and responding and you put those together and then you have four and then that became interaction styles. So we would have, mm -hmm. I give those two lenses, they put them together, try on different patterns, see what fits, just like a shoe. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, and you don't, you don't try on the sole of a shoe to see if it'll work. It wouldn't stay yeah. on your foot, you know? And yeah. yeah, you have to try on the whole shoe. So it's whole patterns that we're after. So speaking of that, it's, well, first I want to say, it seems like, in my opinion, the self-discovery process connects type more with the true values or like the main values that you can get from type rather than if you're looking at just the tests, the main value or benefit that people can get or society can get from type isn't um, what category am I or like for, for job hiring or anything like that. So that's one of the things that I, I like about the fact that you do um, the self-discovery processes because I think it's a better match or link to helping people understand the value of type, which is raising your consciousness or awareness, things like that. Um, but gosh, I was going to ask you something else. Oh, sorry. Um, I was also going to ask you about how your, like the the whole living systems thing. You were talking about the whole shoe. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between the way you view type and the way, I guess, the MBTI is um, and how living systems is kind of yeah. one of your things? <laughs> yeah. So most of my understanding of living systems has come from the work of Fritjof Capra. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he wrote, he, he, he was involved in producing a movie called Mind Walk, which you can watch on YouTube. It's not available anymore, I think, to buy. But, um, and to understand a living system, this is all living systems, mm -hmm. plants, animals, you know, anything living, is that there's a pattern and the pattern stays the same. Mm -hmm. And it's the pattern that rules sort of rules the system, has the operating principles of the system. And then there are processes, and those processes serve to maintain the pattern. Mm -hmm. Those are the activities that you do to main the, maintain the pattern. So 
processes are in service of the pattern. Mm-hmm. And the other, another aspect is structure. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know exactly, that's the embodiment of the, of the pattern. So in a physical sense, it shows up in, in brain, brain patterns. For example, and temperament doesn't show up there in the cerebral cortex, but cognitive dynamics does. And it's not just one brain, one spot in the brain, it's the pattern that, of activity that's there. So um, if you only look at E-I-S-N-T-F-J-P, you've broken up the parts and you, you know, some of the early type descriptions were, well, she's an extrovert and so she does that and and intuition does this and feeling does this and judging does this. Well, the JP doesn't mean anything in and of itself. The more you say about J, the more you're talking about TJ and the, or SJ. And the more you mm-hmm. say about P, the more you're talking about NP, not, not, not SP. So because that was really a, a modifier of the type code. But when you're looking at those separate things, you're missing the whole. And it's the pattern. So at the 16 types level, um, Dario Nardi, theory partner, writing partner, and I worked on uh, some descriptions for the 16 types. Mm-hmm. And we came up with little short themes. <laughs> They're this big on the page. And two word descriptions. And it's those descriptions describe the theme of that whole type pattern. And it's not a combination of anything. Things don't combine to make anything. We are not cakes. Yeah. You know, a cake, a cake is not a living, breathing system. You know, you add ingredients, you stir it up, it gets a sense of consistency. Yeah. But for a, an, a person, we're not that simple. Would you agree? Would you agree? I guess that some of the confusion that people might have about personality typing systems and the science of it is that there's maybe a misunderstanding, like where we're applying the scientific method of how we treat matter that's not living, and like maybe simplifying um, how people work. Yeah, there's a kind of a tendency to do that. I think, um, you know, the trait models, which big five is after, you know, mm-hmm. they, they took all of these traits and they did a statistical analysis, which um, called f- factor analysis. I mm-hmm. used to teach that and I called it, you put all of these things in a jar and you shake it up and you see what sticks together. So that's how those factors were analyzed in a way, you know, using sophisticated statistics. Um, yeah. It's interesting that those factors, the first four, the first three of the factors correlate very strongly, like very strongly with Myers-Briggs preferences. Mm-hmm. So there's some you know, reason to believe that they're getting at a similar thing. Mm-hmm. But, but the, you know, the, the looking at independent things doesn't give you the pattern. Yeah. And until you understand that what makes a typology a typology is that there is a core of some kind, a core psychological need, a core driver, something that is really crucial. It's psychological death if you don't get those needs met. And mm-hmm. then there, in, in the temperament or essential motivators, there's core values and then there are talents. And the talents scratch the itch that the needs create. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're interrelated. And it doesn't mean 
the behaviors that you can engage in and can't engage in those other behaviors, but it really is what is at the core. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at parts, it doesn't get you the whole. Mm. And that's where the instruments themselves are asking at parts. And it, you know, Isabel Myers did her dichotomies on an adding machine, you know, her statistics. Yeah. And laboriously did some 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 the statistical analysis of of them and there was a very sophisticated one which i can't remember the name of today but uh, that that isn't taught anymore really mm. but it it was it, it was uh what's the likelihood of this showing up mm. inside a particular type and um but still that's all she could do today with computers we could do much more sophisticated uh, analyses I suppose. I'm just not inclined to do it. Yeah. And and from what I understand about traits, they're so much easier to measure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because the big five has been measured so much more, validated more, if you want to say that, doesn't necessarily mean that it's like more accurate or more true than other systems, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what's interesting is extroversion and introversion is the most, when I did my dissertation back in 85, was the most researched quality about personality mm. and over longitudinally, in longitudinal studies. But when you look at the definition, their definition of extroversion, it's an extroverted sensing one. Mm not just an extrovert, not just extroversion. Yeah. And so when people would say, I had someone come to a workshop once, I said, what, what do you want to get out of this? And she said, well, I want to understand how to speak to introverts. And I said, it's a question not of introverts, but of introverted what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we all have something that's introverted and we all have something that's a preference for this introverted and we have an extroverted one where a trait would yeah. scramble those things and say, well, you know, you could be a, if you were, you could be an ENFJ for some reason, because, and then it'd be NE, you know, extroverted intuiting and extroverted feeling. Mm. And, you know, there are things like that that happen because of development where that's what your mm. behavior looks like, but that's not the type pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you go back to, I don't know, plants and animals you know there are dogs and there are cats they're different kinds Mm. and there are essential qualities that indicate what kind they are yeah so you know i i just remember too i i don't want to misquote you on this but i believe you mentioned i guess something along the lines of that ethics for type it's not just i guess a feel-good nice thing uh oh it's good to be ethical but like being ethical or having ethical standards when it comes to using type is required for the system to work for the typological system yeah yeah how well if you're not going to follow the ethical principles you shouldn't do it at all because you'll do harm yeah yeah so so you, you you lose the value I wrote, this is a, just something I wrote down. So like, I don't know if you use those exact words, but in my mind, I was thinking about the tandem dynamics of FE mm-hmm. and TI in my own self and reflecting on what you were saying. 
and thinking about mm -hmm. how the ethics and something working and being accurate are like tied together. But <laughs> I didn't know, if, you know, you could ex expand on that briefly. <laughs> oh, well, well, I think <laughs> for me, and this is probably a, a typological bias, um, yeah. If you're using something that hasn't been well researched, and, and the thing is that all research is not um, statistical. So in those programs that I got to, to do for, you know, I traveled, it was great. My poor husband was left with the kids, but you know, <laughs> I had I had that opportunity to observe each of the 16 types at least 12 times a year for three years. Mm -hmm. So what I got was the gut feel for the whole of it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we chose words to describe the different things. And now, you know, we're on the temperament book is 4.0. I'm kind of ready to make a 5.0, but haven't changed any terms yet. Yeah. Um, you know, th that it, there's a constant updating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, bare bones, you need to know about an instrument. If it's been, if, especially if you're using an instrument or an assessment um, where somebody gets a result, you know, the ethics includes accuracy as much as it includes, um, you know, does it uh, actually, yeah. you know, does it, does it measure what it says to measure? and how accurate are the descriptions. So if I saw something today that blew me away, it was on LinkedIn and it was a graphic and the person that posted the graphic, I'm like, I don't think these are his explanations, but they were from some other place. Mm -hmm. And it defined extroverted thinking as thinking out loud. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Yeah. That doesn't hold up. The mm -hmm. definition is not researched based on understanding what the construct is in the first place. So mm -hmm. when you go back to Jung and you read psychological types, mm -hmm. and then you learn from people like Dr. John Beebe, who mm -hmm. has used this for years in his practice, helping heal people. And you know, with all due humility, you know, people like myself, you know, I've been using types since 1975. Yeah, you've been and around. 70s, and I'm 76. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and, and it's been a life work of constantly refining, refining, refining. Yeah. And so, just because you have a, a bit of research doesn't mean that it's going to be accurate. And just because it fits some behaviors, you may mean it. May, may mean it it would work um, but it is it's a it, it's a deep study mm -hmm. to do the self-discovery process for example and to help understand and what one of the things I like now even though I don't like, <laughs> is mm -hmm. so much emphasis on the eight functions mm -hmm. you know and so many different people explaining it and the thing mm -hmm. I've learned is that there's usually some kind of bias in that explanation Mm -hmm. there's bias in my explanations that's why we keep revising yeah. them yes and yeah so we we work to take them out and um 
and in the beginning, a woman, the foundation of the Association for Psychological Types, her preferences, she was the treasurer of the organization when it was founded, and her preferences were ISFJ. Mm-hmm. And she wrote an article in a little bulletin that said, the definitions of sensing have been written by people with preferences for intuiting. And so they're not, they're not as rich. Yeah, And that's I... still the case today. Something that I'm passionate about that maybe I can do some work on in the future is I've noticed that a lot of the feeling descriptions, um, they're described as far as what thinkers see from the feeler, they're accurate, mm-hmm. but it doesn't get at always like the actual functionality of how it, how it functions in my brain where I, th- I think, you know, it's getting closer. Like, I really like your definitions and, and Dario Nardi, I think does a really good job, but like, there's even, I feel like I find myself being hyper critical about like FE, how, how it's described when it's like, oh, it's feeling other people's feelings or something, or it's like, <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, one, of our, one of our colleagues, um, shared with us a a reading of John Beebe's book on Mm -hmm. the most, the most complete thing he's written on type. And, uh, and, and he gave a definition of introverted feeling. Mm. And it's not feelings. Introverted feeling is the process of organizing your feelings. Yeah. Extroverted feeling isn't about feelings. It's, it's the name itself. And I don't even, I speak in a little German, but not enough to understand what the real German mm-hmm. word means. But um, it it isn't about feelings. Yeah. Feelings are information yes. to make a feeling judgment. So if um, you pick up feelings from other people, let's say through extroverted sensing, <laughs> you, yeah. you observe an expression or somehow you just get a vibe about that person kinesthetically, then extroverted feeling is the decision-making process of what could you do to make that person feel better or what could you do to help that person or what could you give to that person or this person isn't safe for me to be around you know, or for other people yeah. to be around. And so those are decisions about what to do with that information. An example that I that really changed the way I looked at it from uh, Lenore Thompson's book, mm-hmm. The Personality mm-hmm. Type and Owner's Manual. Um, I really liked her description of FE in that in that book, where it was something. There was the example of if an FE, if someone with preferences for FE was like organizing their um, address book, they would put it based on who they were going to contact the most or who their best friend is, who or, and all that sort of stuff. And that's like the logical or like the, the rational, I guess you could say, way of ordering it based on the feeling and the relationship rather than like, I think she might have said that TE might have been more like alphabetical. I, I don't know. But, well, and that's useful. We, we get taught a lot of extroverted thinking, reasoning in the school. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes life easier. We don't get taught much about extroverted feel I, I I yeah I've forgotten the term so I can only remember one but I for introverted extroverted feeling I would call that empathic reasoning mm. and introverted yeah. feeling I think I called that as 
priority reasoning or valuing. So introverted I feeling, like prioritization, good prioritization involves introverted feeling and extroverted thinking. Like what are yeah. the consequences if I make this decision? So, I just notice in myself yeah. that there's a huge difference between me reacting emotionally and me processing information with my dominant function, which, right. you know, yeah. sometimes I really am just being emotional and not even processing anything like as we all, as we all are. But, um, well, and, and yeah. if you have a preference for thinking, <laughs> as I do, you may prefer not to get in emotional situations because you don't really know how to deal with them. So they don't have yep. good access yet. Don't yet have access to um, dealing with emotion as information. Mm. Yeah. So, so I want to respect your time here because we've been talking for a bit. So I, I guess I just want to sort of wrap. I'm almost out of water. So. Yeah. So I just wanted to say, is there any other, I guess, things that come to mind for you as far as like ethical concerns with using type that we haven't mentioned? Well, the, the labeling is one of them. Um, uh, one Something is Something I'm trying one, to one get day. rid of that habit. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, you, I saw you catch yourself. So <laughs> you know, it, it's so tempting to talk about thinkers and feelers because you know that it's easy, but it's a preference for those with preference for. And so nominalization is one of those things because the ethics of it is is it labels. And I had an experience recently where. I, I put something out there and somebody said, are you an INTP? And I'm like, what does that have to do with the statement I made? And it felt mm -hmm. like a put down, like, mm -hmm. well, of course you would say that rather than yeah. a dealing with, with the issue that's raised. So um, blaming, blaming others, you know, it's, it's, you know, and not, I don't know. As see, there's the thing is that I'm talking a lot about practitioners, but we have people using type and teaching people how to use type yeah. who are not practitioners. And so there are some ethical issues around that, around how well researched is it? How much do you own it? Like in my view, in my experience, that kind of thing's very helpful mm -hmm. um, to, to own that. Um, and it's a new age, so I have to start and say, well, you know, people can't really, you know, the credentials may not matter to people anymore. But, yeah. you know, but when you're using an instrument, you need to look at the actual reliability and validity data and still use it as a data point. And my preference is if I'm going to use one, the data point is introduced later. Get them to try it on. Mm -hmm. And, and see, because what you're really accomplishing is a process. And I'm sure there's some other main ethical thing I'll tell you about. That yeah, I'm sure I there's so many that you could talk about. I know like conflicting information online that confuses people is a big thing. Like hiring obviously is a big thing. A lot of people want to talk about it, but the people that actually are practitioners don't even seem to use it for that. So, yeah. um, Maybe it's not as big of a problem. But then one other thing is mental health. I, I didn't know if you had any thoughts of like, because this was an issue that was raised um, in a recent documentary where it was 
mentioning like someone who was um, autistic, feeling mm-hmm. like um, they wouldn't, couldn't see themselves in the definitions or like that the definitions of type um, maybe could be classist, racist, or against women or that sort of thing. I mean, the time, if you look at the times of when things were built, people have these questions of, well, are they considering gender? Are they considering, you know, and I, that's kind of a lot of things I just threw at you, but even like, (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah. Uh, So, you know, the issue of race, Carl Jung apparently didn't like people with black skin, right? These theories started, you know, temperament started in the 20s. So all of these theories were popular in the 20s. And interaction styles actually goes back to the 20s. And, and so in the 20s, you know, there were very different attitudes toward women. That was, you know, just got the vote not too long before that. I think if I remember right, mm-hmm. um, against uh, you know about race, um, it it feels really unethical to attribute a characteristic to a type characteristic to women or to a race, and yet mm-hmm. those themes show up in culture. In fact, one of the people very who does a lot of work with. Um, uh, the woundedness that that people feel around race um, talks about people of culture, not people of color. Mm-hmm. So there is a, often a culture that goes with that, and culture is laid down very early. And the culture you could you could apply a typology to it, but to assume that everybody has everything, you know, that would fit everybody uh, shouldn't be the case. Um, and some people won't fit in the box. Mm-hmm. You know, there's development and there's infinite variety. Mm-hmm. And who knows whether type will still be relevant in 20 years or mm-hmm. in 50 years. Like I maybe. see it as all different factors that you need, that we need to work to filter out to get to the core is one way right. of thinking of it. But then there's also just being, I guess, humble in the sense that I mean, you know more than a lot of people how uh, long you've been doing this, how the more you meet people, the more your ideas change about things. And, you know, we're being, you're a part of the conversation of what personality is in 2021, but, you know, we're, I think the criticism and like people talking about it is a good thing because we can think more critically about things that we might've missed. Um, But, you know, I, my, my view on a lot of like the, you know, type doesn't include different cultures or um, people with autism or or any sort of mental illness. I feel like we need to work to filter out like our definitions and consider Mm -hmm. all of the ways that people could be, but. And David Kersey would say that um, there are four kinds of people and they go crazy in certain ways. Um, yeah but he never got the book written on that so um the problem is that the 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 dysfunctional things that are in the dsm whatever version it is right now the diagnoses Mm -hmm. are not really clear categories and they don't correlate to type and so yes 
you might see, you know, and they don't know much about autism at this point, I don't believe. So autism, for example, uh, what might show up as certain, you could use a language of the different functions in terms of what might be able, what person might have a skill with, mm -hmm. but you can't label them a type. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, and actually you shouldn't be labeling anybody. People should be owning that as their pattern and saying, well, this is me, but that's not all of me. There's so many other factors that influence birth order, your parents, you know, your family constellation, the culture you were raised in, uh, traumas. What you said about the DSM is interesting because it's also bringing up the dip, the dissonance between the way we think about type um, and how it's so different from a lot of the behavioral psychology that's popular. And if mm -hmm. we think of the DSM as being categorized similarly to how they thought about the big five, it, there, it, there's not really a clear, like 16 types in the DSM does not seem to mix well. Uh, no. in my, my opinion, because they were thought about and conceived in completely different ways. So when, when, I, when I was billing insurance for people, there was almost always just generalized anxiety, you know, that's, but, but I didn't see severe, severe cases. And mm -hmm. I, you know, the DSM, the whole language isn't, uh, it's, I think this happens in the medical field as well. Different diseases have different names. And, you know, somebody comes with symptoms and then the doctor names, start seeing five or six of these. And he says, oh, well, this is a syndrome. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of dysfunction and they give it a name. One of the things that blew my mind when I, it was discovered that I had chronic Lyme disease mm. and then later mold illness. Uh, and I don't know if I had some other environmental illnesses is that the symptoms very much looked like things I had learned in school that were dysfunctional, that were, that were mental health issues, that they were mm. not mental health issues that if you you get the toxins out of your body the, the you know some of those those things go away and so that blew my mind that you know just <sighs> makes you want to just question everything <laughs> yes of course yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in the meantime yeah you know, we're category we're categorizing beings that's how we learn to talk and yeah. i have to be patient with people just like I am with a baby that calls a cat a goggy because his goggy <laughs> is what is furry and he sees a cat and he calls it a goggy. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah. All so. right. Well, th thank you so much for joining me. I know I threw a lot of big topics at you <laughs> and you, I know you did your best to, there's so much more you could say. Yeah. So I, I'm going to link below for anyone interested, more information about Linda. If you want to take any of the certification courses, I definitely would recommend booklets as, as well. If, you, if you're not sure what your type is, um, a lot of great resources there. So yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so I, much. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was so much fun. Thank and you. If so I much. had a bigger glass of water, it could go longer. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. All right. Have thank a good day. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. Thanks for sticking with me through the end of the episode. I felt that it was important to address one of the comments that Linda said and kind of expand and share my thoughts on it. So Linda said that Carl Jung did not like Black people. She said that. And 
I guess I want to address that we should not be worshiping these great thinkers of the past because the reality is my take is we live in a racist culture right now. We are currently unpacking and trying to um, evolve past so many structures, like structural racism exists, number one. Um, we're still unpacking that. And I absolutely don't deny that. And for those who do deny that, I think that it is so um, embedded in our culture that it's very hard to face and there's very strong denial there. So every single beloved figure from the past that was a white man from a hundred years ago, like newsflash, they were racist. That's, that's my take on that. And I'm not, I don't ever want to be apologetic of that, but I do want to bring that to light. And I, I want to point out that the MBTI itself, the actual questions that people answer has been edited many times. Um, there's been different forms of, of the test that has been updated with language that better fits the cultural moment. Now, I don't have a lot of knowledge on the validity of whether or not there's an argument there to be made that some of those questions were um, racist or sexist or ableist or any of that. But I do know that um, the goal that I have is that we should be unpacking all of our biases with every single question and every test and doing our best to consider all people and all experiences and that as culture grows we can untangle that but the reality is um i'm american my country was founded on racist origins the constitution was founded on racist origins to throw out everything that carl young did because he was racist would be like the same thing as saying like let's throw out our constitution because it was started with racist intent which that could be something you want to do. The point is, is that that's our history and we have to reckon with it. And I think that the approach is to address it and to change it. Um, I don't think that it makes sense to, uh, to me, it feels like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that the reality is it was white men of privilege who were able to have the education of psychology. Um, and so and to even go to college and spend the time and have the leisure to be thinking about these things in the past. To say that Carl Jung was racist without looking at Aristotle or Socrates or um, Kierkegaard or anyone, like it just doesn't make sense. Like we have to recognize that the reality is, is that the structures of our society, they were built by white men and how are we going to approach that? How are we going to move forward with that? That's the question that I want to ask. Um, and uh, I also wanted to point out that um, Carl Jung, Carl Jung's thoughts on psychological types, um, it's very cross-cultural. 
in the sense that feeling, thinking, sensing, and intuiting are have are not new. Carl Jung did not like invent that. Um, feeling, thinking, sensing, and intuiting has been around in astrology, in tarot, in basically every culture. And Carl Jung, his intention was to try and find the common theme from all cultures. Um, and he was inspired by other cultures. So you can get into the ethics of that if you want, but I believe that feeling, thinking, sensing, and intuiting, and the two orientations of extroversion and intuitive or extroversion and introversion is something inherent in culture, but the descriptions and the tests and how we talk about that and our value judgments toward the different types. I think that's where the bias can show up and that's where uh, people could be racist or sexist. Um, but I think that the actual, at least I believe in the ideal, that the ideal is inherent in everyone. Even if you look at David Kiersey's work with the four temperaments, um, these four temperaments are not new. He did not come up with them. Um, these temperaments uh, come from, there's been Greek temperaments of like choleric, sanguine, melancholic. I forget what the other one's called. People have been talking about personality since humans have been since we've been a species. And um, what I think the best thing to do is to take a critical look at, if you are interested in personality, take a critical look at what um, work has been done and what ideas have already been had in the past. And how can we bring that forward to the future? And how can we um, apply it to the current time and um, cause we have shadows in the past, like we, we have our shadows as a species where there's been war, there's been slave trade, there's been sexism, uh, women were burned for being witches. Um, there's lots, there's lots of things like we have, and I don't mean to even dismiss how, um, cruel, like racism is or like lump it in as just like any old thing like that's a whole other story and I don't want to like talk too much about it right now but I guess I just want to say that let's not worship white men from the past um but let's like learn from the past whenever we are trying to future proof an idea there's a balance there um you can learn from something without, while also recognizing that the values of the time we might consider to be barbaric now. I mean, hopefully we do. Hopefully right now we are thinking about um, what we will and will not accept, what our, what our boundaries are, what our values are. Um, but yeah. Um, just wanted to say that that was that point was not meant to be flippant or understated. It's something I care very deeply about to where it's almost impossible to find the perfect words for. But um, that's how I see it. I, I, I see that there's this holistic um, pattern, but that the individuals themselves are seeing things through a filter and describing things through a filter. And that filter is their culture and their cultural values and what's considered a norm. Um, and a lot of times what's not, 
what's not a norm is then shoved into the shadow of their psyche, you can actually use this tool and a lot of what Carl Jung talked about in order to understand. Carl Jung himself knew that he didn't know everything. He what he didn't claim to because his whole um, theory was like he knew he had a shadow, and you know that was something that was in his shadow, and it's been in the shadow of white people for um, centuries. Uh, uh, this shadowy feeling of needing to be the superior race and all this competition um it's a shadow and i think that what i love right now about what's happening now in culture is that um that shadow is being there's a bright light shining on that shadow and it might seem really divisive and chaotic now and it definitely is but i'm hopeful that in the long term that a lot of the chaos happening now um, is because we're finally seeing the shadow. We're finally seeing it. And so hopefully that means that it's not gonna be there uh, for that long. It can't, like now that people are talking about it more and it's more of a hot topic than it was, it doesn't mean that um, we're suddenly divided. It's just shining a light on the shadow that was always there, so. Thanks for listening. And um, yeah, this was a really fun interview to do. And I'm excited to, if you have any comments or anything, I'm, I always love reading them and hearing um, more of the conversation. So uh, thank you for listening.